Uh, good afternoon, friends. Uh, welcome to the uh, to this edition of Afternoons with an Author. Uh, we're delighted to have with us today uh, our uh, our own member of the board, the General TGS Pannu, who needs no introduction because I think this is your fifth appearance in Afternoons with an Author. Uh, Toby Simon has also been associated with Wow because uh, uh, those of us who have seen the uh, the video recordings of the sessions. Uh, on MHS in Delhi, uh, Toby was with us in Delhi. It was a great pleasure to welcome both our friends from the Wow MHS family uh, to this edition. Uh, we are supported by the National Digital Library of India, which is at the IIT Kharagpur. Uh, so we have our uh, colleagues from the Petroleum University, ONGC, Incredible India, IBLF, Sochcast, Coal India, and all our partners who are listening in to us. Uh, a very brief uh, introduction to General Pannu, who uh, is now one of India's most uh, cerebral thinkers on everything which flies, I mean, thoughts which fly. So whether it is drones or whether it is space or whether it is outer space, uh, General Pannu seems to be, you know, sending his thought signals everywhere. So welcome, uh, General Pannu. But uh, for those who don't know, he was the uh, Deputy Chief of Integrated Staff uh, responsible for raising the Defense, Space, and Cyber Agencies, as well as the Special Forces Division. Uh, we have worked together on the joint civil-military program uh, at the LBS National Academy, which was uh, a program uh, designed to get everybody in national security on the same platform. Uh, so welcome, General Pannu. And uh, we're delighted to have with Thank us you. Dr. Simon here with us. He is, uh, uh, I mean, he, he runs a very powerful foundation. Uh, which is based on synergy because he believes that unless we can get, uh, unless we create synergy, things won't work. So he's one of those who believes that we must break out of silos. Uh, but uh, uh, just to give you an idea of what he's been doing, uh, the three decades of uh, multidisciplinary skills and global networks with a hands-on experience in international business, international affairs, strategic cybersecurity, open source intelligence, and most importantly, conflict resolution, you know, and, and taking practical steps to ensure that wherever there's distress, uh, we can provide some relief. And, you know, of course, there is business incubation and many, uh, many, many things, including future proofing of business. Now, this future proofing of business is something which is very, very significant. Uh, but as we go along, many of these thoughts will come up. But friends, as we are aware, our talk today or our, our discussion today is on the power of future machines, uh, uh, essays on artificial intelligence. And we're going to be specifically first talking about the seminal essay which General Pannu has written uh, in this book, which is called Artificial Intelligence for National Security. This is a theme on which General Pannu has been expounding uh, his thoughts at several fora. Uh, so what uh, we'll do is that we'll first request General Pannu to give us his, to give us his thoughts. Then I'll request uh, Toby to, you know, give... Uh, to ask some pertinent questions uh, from General Pannu, and then the conversation will flow. Meanwhile, all of us who have joined us on this platform, do send in your questions on the WhatsApp or on the Facebook, and uh, Program Director Tanya will be will be recording those questions and sending this over to the panelists. Uh, over to you, General Pannu. Thank you, Sanjeev, uh, for introducing me and the subject on which I have written, that is artificial intelligence and in particular, Artificial Intelligence for National Security. I'm very happy that, you know, Toby is with uh, with us. Uh, uh, his uh, credentials you have spoken about, but uh, Toby and me uh, have also spoken on a few platforms. And I really uh, find him uh, not only very well informed, but I think he's got a great insight to the future uh, on what technologies possibly can do uh, both um, the challenges that they will bring to us, which we have to handle, and also what is the capability that we can get out of this technology. So uh, you mentioned uh, about the power of future machines. Uh, it is a book which actually uh, was written um, over a period of time. Uh, I wrote my essay about two years back, and many things have happened after that. Uh, but you know many other essays which have been written they were selected globally uh, by rajiv malhotra and he's put them together uh, the background to this book is 
that uh, Rajiv Malhotra, two years ago, had written a book, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Power and Five Battlegrounds. So in which he's talking about battlegrounds for economic development and jobs, global power, psychological control and agency, metaphysics, and of course, the battlegrounds where he's talking about India's future. And that is where I think the main scare comes and a lot of caution comes that how is India going to cope up with something which is being thrown at us by the international community and by those who have excelled in technology already and are much ahead in the curve, whether we have been able to grasp the nuances of this new threat or the new challenge which is coming up, or we are up and about and are going to be part of the entire mainstream progress in the field of artificial intelligence. Uh, Many uh, people think that India has produced a lot of uh, uh, brains who write softwares. Uh, we have got Silicon Valley, you know, equivalent in Bangalore and Hyderabad. We have a lot of uh, youngsters who have excelled in various fields of writing programs for computers and IT specialists who not only been working in India, but also largely contributed to the Silicon Valley in the United States. Those big names have contributed hugely towards the technology that we are talking about that powers the artificial intelligence and the future of it. But as far as the national security is concerned, we know that the concept of nation state has come about where we have defined territories. And in the defined territories, we first look at the challenges which will come to us across the land borders and also as the flying machines develop the uh, flying machines you know right from first second world war how they have risen to have the power projection through the air so air defense became part of the continuum to defend our land borders and ultimately now we've landed up in space and cyber which is the fourth and the fifth domain so when you see that the technology is actually taken us to global commons and we start sharing our, our boundaries, which actually are not boundaries because you cannot define those boundaries as far as cyber and, cyber and the uh, space uh, domains are concerned. That is where the scare comes from that how are we going to defend ourselves and how is national security going to be managed if we are going to run on platforms built by somebody else, programmed by somebody else, and we are feeding into it how our mind works, how, what our behavior pattern is. And all these platforms are gathering the information, uh, our own behavior, how we do our business within our communities, within a nation as, as individuals. Who are the personalities at the helm? Uh, what do they think? Uh, which is the uh, direction that the nation collectively is going to take if the bureaucracy and the leadership is thinking in a particular direction? How are the people forming themselves and what are the opinions coming up? How is democracy, which is so very uh, transparent and public, uh, going to do things which are going to empower without the outer world from where the threat emanates, uh, wanting to know uh, the uh, understanding of our vulnerabilities? So if the democracy of ours or the openness of ours and the keenness to join the bandwagon uh, to work on the platforms which are not built by us, not created by us, but are largely created in the United States or China, and we will increasingly talk about these two countries, then we are actually handing over our data, how we think, how we are supposed to be posing ourselves for our own internal security and the future strengths, what are philosophies and doctrines and policies which are going to come up, which are also getting largely influenced by the data which is coming from outside to us. It means that the data goes from here and the theories come to us as if they're our own theories and the belief system gets created, which may not be our own belief system. And that is where Rajiv Malhotra has been very concerned about that we are inadvertently going to be playing into the hands of some we don't know. And the advanced world who have had earlier colonized the world and India was a colony and we are very fearful of it that uh, after great effort that we have been able to come to uh, being called an independent nation uh, should not be colonized now differently by the industry. Because in many essays actually written in the same book that you're talking about, The Power of Future Machines, 
they say yeah. while the physically the powers left those uh, colonies and went away but they they ensured that the dependence remains so therefore the colony in not physical form but largely in in non physical form remained in place so therefore if artificial intelligence is going to uh, create those kind of circumstances in which we are completely dependent on the western or the industrialized world then how is the future going to be and he fears that we should not if not already uh, if we have not become the digital colony of the world because in many uh, places he talks about we have already been colonized by the world as far as the digital power is concerned so this is the prelude in which i thought uh, this book was uh, written thank you i think uh, general banu has made it uh, quite explicit that uh, from colonizing territories to colonizing minds that seems to be the new uh, strategy uh, which the west is following uh, may i request toby to get into the discussion here uh and 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 let's have his thoughts on the subject uh first of all uh let me thank uh, sanjeev uh, and panu general panu for uh, uh you know having provided such a platform to discuss and uh, i must also congratulate uh, general panu for his outstanding article uh, that he has written uh i i would just want to focus first uh, more on on his essay and uh, and uh, as he was kind to mention me and mention me that i look at things in the future i also look at things in the past that uh, the idea of the, the title of the book of being the power of future machines uh, you know in in somewhere in 1990 ray kurzweil had written a book the age of intelligent machines and uh, this is basically very similar to this and and it it also takes in a lot of insights from uh, mid professors like marvin minsky for me it's very important that we don't mix uh, culture with science because that's a, a that's a, a, a more like a molotov cocktail to me because we are neither science nor culture so i think we should separate science from culture so because science is science and culture is culture and if my first point is if we have taken the benefit of science and all we talk about the advantage of uh, of things that happened in the west which uh, was the genesis of our it revolution and all the economic prosperity that we made then the extensions of this and is not uh, india is no exception every country that Uh, is operating in this world faces the same then we must be prepared how to sort of uh, look at these changes that are happening so there are if you look at from a technology perspective there is a philosophical point a mathematical and a technological this was the same in 1950s 1960s and 1990s and and we look at two things one is the patent recognition which is demonstrated by vision and the knowledge representation as is seen in language both have not changed what what has happened is that in the last few uh, if if uh, jalpanu alluded to the colonization to me i i take a slightly uh, contrarian stance because if you look at how india lost its freedom it is not because of weapons or uh, or uh, you know or uh, science or anything it was purely because we were weak internally and it is not going to be you can be sure i mean i am reasonably sure nothing that is external would be uh, powerful enough to to sort of affect a country like india but what will be more worrying is what happens within the country and history is a proof of how we we were first colonized uh, last colonized by the british uh, was previously colonized by somebody else so i think that's that's the bigger worry for me rather than to be too worried about uh, uh, about the whole idea of uh, ai colonizing now there is a truth about this ai ai works on data and data that is already recorded as far as you know, we have an intrinsic disadvantage that whatever researches that we say we have done has not been documented now when you have to depend on machine learning to to work on ai then the problem is we don't have enough data and this is not only uh, 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 particular for india 
it's the same for all, all old civilizations, uh, I was telling Sanjeev, whether it is the Persians, whether it is the Egyptians, whether it is the Chinese, I mean, they're playing the technology now. But when it comes to data, you, when you put something on Google or you put in chat GPT, the problem is it has to pick up from data. Now, if it doesn't come, uh, um, uh, then the problem is not with the, with the algorithm. It is just that there is not sufficient data for, for the machine learning to complete its process. I think I will just uh, uh, make these opening remarks, which is basically uh, going back to what uh, Panu Panu said, and then leave it at that uh, to take the uh, deeper issues that he has uh, mentioned in his article. But I think the point which uh, you are making, Toby, is that you know uh, that we have to, to we, have, we have to consider culture as a separate aspect and science as a separate aspect. Whereas the entire thesis of uh, Rajiv is that you know these are very closely interlinked, and uh, he goes on to sort of even say that you know uh, Howard University doing a whole documentary on the Kumbh Mela is something like which is which is going to affect India and all. So at times this 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 meta narrative, uh, which uh, Mr. Malhotra has built, uh, uh, you know, and to and because General Pannu is uh, has has contributed a chapter in his book and has been a co-panelist with him. So uh, how would you react to the points which Toby has made? That why are we getting into this sort of a, why are we getting into this scare mode? Because problems, if any, are going to be internal, and these problems cannot come to us from outside. Uh, so this is a this is a question to you from both of us. <laughs> um, there are two aspects to it. Uh, <clears throat> we are into uh, industry 4.0. Uh, really speaking, the industrial revolution did not start here, and we became colonized. The raw materials went out. Also, more increasingly, in the second industrial revolution, where the UK became a superpower, and India being the jewel in the crown of British Empire, I think, suffered also the most. That maximum was taken out from India. And that is how the United Kingdom became United Kingdom super rich. It is only the Second World War after which the Cold War, the Third Industrial Revolution, basically was based on what the two superpowers in the Cold War, Russia or the Soviet Union at that time, and America did. And I think they were the benefactors of technology, East and West, did whatever they did, and the technology came up in these two blocks. Uh, the geopolitics, of course, you know, did what it did to the Soviet Union collapse. But now the fourth industrial revolution, where you're talking about the information age, is it going to help India or not help India? I think what Rajiv Malhotra is saying, I don't support or not support him. I think he's uh, free to make his judgment on it. I think he is very concerned that we should not miss the dividends of the fourth industrial revolution. And I think we need to wake up. Otherwise, this is going to be a watershed moment where the haves and have nots and those who do not benefit out of the fourth industrial revolution. And very clearly in front of us, as we see the play of things, is that it is now between the US and China that the East and West industrialization and the effects of fourth industrial revolution are going to either benefit either of them and they are going to be in competition. <clears throat> and I think the book also talks about in other essays, the third contender actually is India. And if India does not secure its place now, it will be very difficult for India to come back to where it has lost and will not be able to lose because we should not now contribute towards being the runners up in this race uh, in the fourth industrial revolution. And also, when you talk about the uh, national security, uh, today, of course, uh, in the national security, there are a lot of critical infrastructures which are coming up, which are largely on platforms which are uh, in the system of systems. Many uh, countries actually suffer cyber attacks and they don't report or they report, but they also have systems where they can either do the quick uh, uh, diagnosis and repair and restore. Uh, but I think many times it takes very long for certain countries to repair the damage. Uh, that is how when you talk about the national security in the hybrid war situation uh, from conventional uh, war preparation that India has been making for very long because of two adversaries pushing us on the borders. 
and our investment went largely into making analog machines uh, for uh, ground operations. But now that in the fourth industrial revolution and near fourth industrial revolution, the electronics had a big role to play. And following the example of uh, how the car industry or the automobile industry came up in India or how the telecom sector came up in India. Now, these are two examples how the telecom sector, we were left behind, but we caught up in a way. But then I think we have half uh, uh, taken advantage of that evolution of the telecom sector also. And only few players were left because the others just could not cope up with the challenges in the telecom sector. Similarly, in the automobile sector, uh, we uh, were content with the cars that we were used to uh, when we were young, uh, ambassadors and fiats. But as we got stiff competition from uh, outside, uh, we did whatever we did in the national policy, but ultimately we had to learn lessons under the denial regime of technology. Uh, not direct sanctions, but largely the technology became so expensive, uh, cost prohibitive, that we had to do a lot of research internally and I think today we are almost in the international, uh, you know, standards or global standards of automobile uh, manufacturing. But uh, recently you saw last year what happened, that our factories could not churn out the cars because of our over-dependence on the semiconductors. So if we have made world-class cars, but we still are dependent on certain critical uh, uh, components from outside, that is the case when we are making any machinery which is going to be based on these platforms, based on artificial intelligence. We don't have semiconductors. We do not have critical materials. We don't have silicon. We don't have uh, power materials and electronics. If you really categorize the PME, we are dependent on uh, the technology and the materials both from outside. I think that is the colony or the scare that we have to not only manufacture or assemble here in India and call ourselves that we are indigenized, but I think we have to do a lot of research and development and we have very few patents. I mean, if you uh, look at a future of uh, unicorns, uh, it's like, you know, uh, when you see a lot of cranes working, you know, big high, high heavy duty cranes working, you know, this nation is going to have good infrastructure. But when you have good patents coming in, you know that these, this country will have good unicorns coming up. But we have cranes working, infrastructure is coming up. From distance, you can see Delhi, Gurgaon, you know, a lot of cranes, you know, and, and, and dozens working alongside the road. And you know, infrastructure is coming up. But we do not see too many patents coming out. And therefore, unicorns, uh, aspiring uh, startups, folding up or migrating to the Western world, as I think is a scare. And I would share some part of it, but we can talk about it uh, as we uh, discuss uh, in due course. Toby? No, I, I think uh, uh, what General Panu said is, uh, is, is absolutely uh, spot on uh, in terms of the, the, the implications of AI. But I, let, me, let me just try to add to what he has shared uh, out of his military background. I think the, the AI will play primarily in seven areas when it comes to national security. The first and the foremost is going to be in the intelligence, surveillance, and record area. Basically, AI will automate the works of thousands of human analysts who spend hours sifting through footages drawn for actionable information and you know, perhaps reduce the coding error that comes in in the process while we do uh, intelligence analysis. The second would be in the area of logistics. So, you know, AI will have a fairly uh, deep utility in the field of military logistics and basically in areas like predictive aircraft man, uh, maintenance. Third will be, as General Panu said, it will be very key in advancing military cyber operations. So at the end, you know, one of the most, you know, we need to get to, to some level of AI or machine learning with the volume of activity that we have to comprehend when you are defending networks. It's not possible to do it uh, entirely through human hands because we will always be behind the power curve. And the fourth one I would uh, try to focus is on information operations and deep fakes. AI is enabling re uh, increasingly realistic photos, audio and video forgeries or deep fakes 
that adversaries could deploy as part of the information warfare operation. So, you know, uh, uh, governments are launching uh, projects to counter this. Uh, DARPA has one called Media Forensics or MEDI4, uh, which is because it's all going to be hybrid warfare in the end. It's all wars are going to be fought. It is going to be optics. It's going to be in the mind. The next one is command and control, where AI is analytical potential in the area of command and control. Basically, in, when it comes to having to work interoperable, uh, you know, ways of uh, fighting a combat. The next one will be semi-autonomous and autonomous vehicles. And the, finally, it will be the lethal autonomous weapon system, uh, which are a special class of systems that use sensors and computer algorithms to independently identify a target and employ onboard weapons to engage and destroy targets without manual control of systems. So this seven would I feel be the the, the sort of uh, areas where we would uh, end up having to focus when it comes to the implication of AI in a national, on national security. Uh, you know, let me uh, get in a civil service perspective here and I, I'll talk about uh, Singaporean civil servant, uh, and uh, he's taking a civilizational perspective on issues uh, where he also thinks, you know, that this current thought that we have of, you know, uh, of, of China and US being together versus India or India being a small player in the field, uh, it could also be a situation where, you know, China and US are actually heading towards a major confrontation. And maybe at some point of time, India and China being old civilizational partners uh, can also get together. Let me quote from uh, from page 125 of this book. Uh, Kishore Mahbubani claims that uh, from year 1 to year 1820 or so of recorded history, India and China were the world's two foremost economies and consequential powers till colonialism and imperialism exemplified by inferior steel, opium, water imposed in China and opium imposed in China stepped in. The last 200 years, therefore, were merely an aberration in the longer march of history. The natural inference is that we are now missing the inevitable return of history. If India and China, the world's number one and number three economies in terms of PPP, manage their geopolitical and geostrategic relationship with wisdom, both shall prosper and bloom. Now, I know that at the moment, it sounds very, very counterintuitive. But, uh, you know, history is all about looking ahead. It's also about taking, you know, uh, insights from the past. So, so maybe uh, uh, let's open up this question and maybe Toby can react to it first. And then we'll request General Panu uh, to comment on this. Uh, Sanjeev, it's very interesting that uh, I had lunch with uh, Kishore about uh, uh, 60 days back. Yeah, okay, lunch. great. <laughs> How wonderful. And, uh, and, uh, in a very connected world, you know, it's, it's so yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah, And uh, he's very smart, very sharp. And he definitely is, uh, he speaks for the Chinese. Uh, he's an Indian by origin, but a Singapore diplomat. And uh, uh, he said, he made an interesting remark that uh, uh, the Americans will fight the Chinese to the last Indian. So I started laughing. He said that, you know. So uh, he brought in a lot of these points, and, uh, you know, the, the difference. But you see, in the Chinese psyche, there is one thing very important, that they are not willing to uh, consider India as a, as a relevant power uh, unless they see that we have, we have demonstrable heft. Perhaps the only time they saw it was around 2006, 7, 8, and where they felt that India might be a challenge to them. So I think we have to, we have to, we have to just forget China and manage that relationship somehow or the other. It will be too hard, too painful for both. I don't think either US would want to fight with China, okay, unless it is they're going to encircle it with uh, other allies. But then, you know, who takes uh, all the pain? Uh, similarly with India, I think it's all about managing this conflict. Uh, and, and I feel that the day we have heft, uh, uh, demonstrable heft, I think uh, the Chinese language towards us will become much more uh, easier. Until then, uh, you know, 
we have to manage. I, I, I don't want to open up more than that. We have to manage this. Uh, it's a neighbor. We, we, we can't displace it. So how do we manage it uh, and, and, and be real about it? Uh, and I'm sure uh, Ajal Pannu would have his own insights. Uh, but mine is more as, what's the consequence you know, in, in all these things? Um, are we ready to pay? Are they ready to pay? So it's, it's something that, uh, is it so inevitable? They're not fools. They also know it's going to pain them also. So can we manage it? Uh, and, and get our home and everything that we need to uh, set right here in order, Mo mostly in the economic front. Yeah. Uh, that's something that uh, Kishore was saying, that the Chinese were able to take 95% of the people out of poverty. So that's something that uh, he, he was... Cost, uh, at what cost and at, at, at what, you know, because this is a, a point which even Rajiv uh, and then many people say that, you know, China did this, China did that. But at what cost? I mean, you know, we've not had a famine in this country post-independence. Uh, I mean, the last recorded famine was the Bengal famine, right? And after that, we've been able to, you know, to, to grow without any major distress. So that's also something that we got to take into account. So when this very one-sided narrative of everything being right in China is there, I mean, I, I feel a bit uh, disconcerted uh, with this narrative. But let's have General Panno into the picture now. Um, China is emerging as a power and threatening uh, US. It's known. Uh, USA acknowledges it and uh, China states it. Second thing is understanding China has been a challenge for United States as it is for the rest of the world. It is, they have really isolated themselves very cleverly from the rest of the world. And I think sometimes they also make light of the democracy and more so of Indian democracy to say that the kind of democracy India has, India will never be able to manage its uh, affairs. Uh, also, they have gone on record to say that uh, they have no respect for India as a country. Uh, and they say, not only say it, but they believe in it. Uh, but they also historically feel that they suffered 200 years of their own national embarrassment. Uh, and now it is time for them to reclaim their position as the Middle Kingdom. As a result, their aspiration to become the superpower is not just a mere aspiration of leadership, but I think they have convinced themselves that historically, they, and in, in, in geopolitics of how they are, uh, they should be the number one power of the world. And to practice being number one power of the world, obviously there are two major and of course many other side uh, fundamentals which are important. One is the uh, economic power and second is the military muscle. Uh, Chinese economy is largely known and now they have gone digital. And I suppose if they achieve supremacy in their own country to a limited extent or to an extent that they threaten the United States uh, as far as the dollar uh, supremacy is concerned, uh, that is going to be a watershed movement as far as the overall the economy's uh, behavior is concerned because then it will be not only the China versus the rest of the world, it will be maybe other countries would form a consortium uh, in the currency basket and go along with the Chinese. And I think that will be a, a movement where India will have to decide which way India has to go. Uh, over three and a half thousand kilometers of frontier with China, India has had border skirmishes. We have not been able to settle the matters with China. And over 20 uh, meetings have happened and they have not been able to come to a common understanding of where the borders should lie. And we have open borders, which we call LAC, and we are being pushed around on the borders, bases, their claims, and our claims, which we sometimes say in different words at different places differently. So over a period of time, they have now come and occupied certain areas in the last two years, and we know what, what is happening in the eastern Ladakh. They tried the same thing in Doklam. Uh, they have uh, also come and occupied certain portions in Arunachal Pradesh in 5586, uh, uh So all, all that has happened on the borders. Now, if India and China have to make a peace on the borders, I think largely the two leaders have to come together to decide 
that we have respect for each other for mutual coexistence and mutual coexistence is i think a terminology which they have this is overbeaten te terminology right from panchil onwards the mutual understanding mutual cooperation mutual benefit and uh, creating a climate of peaceful coexistence and all that i think thousand times this has been written but yet we have coexisted in in the way we have coexisted now coming to the point of india whether india is going to make peace with china or not i think it is not only india's choice it is i think china's choice also if they have to prove a military muscle they have built their own uh, military industrial complex where have they tested it in war uh, they keep doing firepower demonstrations here and there america tests its military industrial complex in conflicts that they create participate or initiate and and their war uh, machine is a corporate war machine it is not a military war machine in fact i would say uh, america is a corporate uh, democracy uh, their entire democratic thought uh, runs on how uh, business houses run whereas india runs a democracy in a in a way that we are very clear about that we need to evolve over a period of time and how we do business collectively so as a result if our military industrial complex is not as strong and china built the industrial military complex and decides to test somewhere then they have only choices to go either towards taiwan that is the south china east china sea or come towards india or create circumstances where they prove that chinese military equipment is superior and they cannot trigger conflicts yet so as a result i think if china and india have to make peace i think it is long way off and secondly i think the first cold war going into the second cold war which uh, we are set to have is a digital cold war i think this equilibrium will also take some time to settle maybe a decade or so uh, it is not that tomorrow we have to take decisions but uh, in our so called uh, positioning of strategic autonomy uh, really speaking uh, some people some commentators say no you, you actually have swung uh, you are not so much uh, into strategic autonomy because you are playing into the hands of some but the point is we have land borders america doesn't have land borders america can have the patience to wait and they will not be harmed of course you know uh, 911 was what it was but it, it is a very different demonstration and they came back to the world but with america retreating from afghanistan with certain areas from where america was syria and iraq america is no more there in that measure so is america retreating or is it a strategic retreat to reposition itself and have they gone into south china sea that is also a question mark the quad is also a question mark the india's role in quad is also increasingly become becoming a question mark so as a result i suppose nobody can say for sure whether india and china will make peace and grow peacefully together and contribute to that so called 50% of the gdp of the globe yet i think time will tell okay yes toby Anji, I, I just wanted to uh, go back to what you said. You see, to me, it doesn't matter uh, whether China is bluffing about its uh, people out of poverty. That doesn't matter. The question is India. It's about us. Okay. Uh, if we have to take on anybody, even if it's a local boxing competition, you know, let's say in our village, we'll make sure that we have uh, the strength and we're trained enough to do that. If we are not, then we will wait. That's all I meant. You know, it is biding our time to make sure that uh, you know we 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 don't uh, get into unknown unknowns and areas where it becomes too costly. And second is, my belief is, if we have to uh, uh, fend for ourselves, nobody is going to come to help us. That's how in current politics, it's going to be us. So what strength? So Panu has said, Jal Panu has said so many things. So what strength do we have currently uh, that we can just say? Uh, we will try this out. Maybe we'll have to do a little bit of wait and watch to see how others are playing, bite for a little time, and see whether perhaps who knows history will come to our advantage. But if we overplay our card, you know, we never know. It's a risk we will take, and I'm sure the the, the strategic thinkers in India would uh, weigh that option differently. But mine is always just to be a little more cautious because uh, there are lots of things we don't know. Certainly. So, uh, General Panu, so in in this scenario, what kind of strategy 
would you suggest India should have? Um, uh, first, I will just give another remark and come to our own strategy, and I think it will link up very well. Um, Rajiv Malhotra gives an example of Titanic, crash of Titanic into the iceberg. And at that time, 100 years back, it was the state-of-the-art ship built, which was the strongest ship, which could, could is unsinkable. So at the end of it, uh, they say he uh, the ship had a sonar. Uh, it was built very well, but yet it went into an iceberg because the tip of the iceberg was still at distance, but something which could not be seen, as you're saying, unknown, unknown. Actually, that iceberg became unknown, unknown, and the ship got into the iceberg. And uh, according to what he says and how I understand is that for almost two, two and a half hours, it uh, took uh, people to realize that actually they are in trouble and they are uh, actually going to sink. I think there was a dance party on. Uh, the captain was quite reassured that nothing much will happen. Uh, the UDA loop, as you say, uh, the information did not flow in, or he did not understand, or he did not decipher uh, or analyze the information that flowed, uh, flown in. And so therefore, even uh, the lifeboats could not be deployed on time. Otherwise, if they knew two hours were more than sufficient to deploy all the lifeboats to get people out. But the ship sank when the dance party was still on and the band was still playing. So in that, what how he's linking that up with India is that he says, I'm only acting as a sonar. And you might think that the iceberg is far away, but maybe in the unknown unknown, it may have already come very close and you are just about to crash at it. He says, I'm just warning, let the captain make sure his sonar is on. He says, maybe the sonar was off or maybe he did not believe, the, believe in the information that the sonar was giving. He is basically alerting the leadership he is basically alerting the people to the ills of something which are on our doorstep and we have not taken care of. Because according to how he feels and how I feel is that once you lose, then you have already lost. Now, to trying to win a, a lost battle takes much more juice out of a nation than to first win and then go to war. And I think it is important to first win and then go to war rather than start a war and then decide to win and root. Uh, See, I, get the, I, I, I get the gist of what you're saying and we get the gist of what Mr. Marotra is also trying to say. But post-COVID, some things have happened. Post-COVID, some things have happened which the Chinese never thought would happen. And there's an entire set of literature which is also saying that, you know, what China projects is very different from what China is. You know, but we take the point which you're saying that the leadership always has to be prepared. The leadership always has to has to be ready. And in fact, even uh, Mr. Malhotra points out that Niti has set up a has set up a committee. The army has set up a committee, and uh, you know. But there are other things which we have to take into account, and that brings me to a recent book by by Rohini Nilekeni, in which he says that for any society to grow, you need the sarkar, of course, the government has to be there. You need the bazaar, you need an open, independent market, and you need a samaj, you need a civil society where wherein all this complex will, will happen. So China, to my mind, uh, seems to have a very strong sarkar. But as far as the aspect of bazaar is concerned, as far as the aspect of samaj is concerned, there are there are problems there. Which uh, And unless all these things work together, you cannot build a 21st century nation only on the strength of the sarkar. Uh, other components have to be very much a part of the of the of the growing model and i'll come back to you because you have at various points of time and in fact that point has come up in a conversation that while in india it is the it is the entire nation going to war in the case of china it is the nation and the society going to war but let me put a contrarian view on the subject that unless uh, the the markets and unless the civil society is also playing uh, playing a role you know unless there's a little bit of tussle unless there's a little bit of uh, of, of competition, a little bit of uh, a little bit of creative tension in society, uh, you do not do very well. Uh, and the, and the same analogy about the Titanic for India could also be an analogy for the leadership of China. I mean, even they don't know what's happening beneath the radar because at least in India we know what's happening beneath the radar and maybe our uh, uh, we we overproject our difficulties. But there you have a leadership which is not willing to listen 
to what's happening in their society. And this whole belief that governments can control everything, I think, sir, it's a it's a it's an old 19th, 20th century concept. May not work in the internet age. Uh, but uh, over to you, Toby. Uh, all these conversations, you know, have to lead to uh, to these uh, these opinions. And I'm glad that there are different opinions because uh, if there was the same opinion, why have a conversation at all? Uh, so to you, Toby. And then we'll have we have a lot of questions coming in from the young uh, students, so we'll try to respond to them. Sure. Thanks, Sanjeev. Uh, I, I I think Jal uh, Panu has spoken well, and so have you, Sanjeev. Uh, the point that I want, I mean, we're coming back to this whole discussion about uh, machines and AI and how they are going to create asymmetry. So I think that the core of the book stems from that. Uh, Panu has worked on the military part. But, you know, as, as one of the uh, big uh, changes I feel will be that as, as AI becomes more and more robust, a military power the growth of military power will get disconnected from population size and economic uh, strength. Uh, recently, there was a, a world fact book by an intelligence agency that the that you know in future even countries with small elderly and declining populations may be able to use robotics and uh, robotic manpower far beyond their uh, human population size. So you know, looking at South Korea as a country, so. My, my sense is what we need to be uh, uh, concerned about is how do we strengthen our uh, our basis, our research, our, our fundamental science, so that we, as Jal Panu was saying, that we don't live entirely on borrow, borrowed technologies or platforms. So I think the first focus for us to succeed is to strengthen the, the research that is there. And, and in the book, uh, the author, the, you know, Rajiv, has also mentioned about uh, Indians working more for the Western uh, you know, uh, companies. Now, how do you make paradigm shift of these? Like, for example, when I live in a, in a city like Bangalore, I see that, uh, that more than the, 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 the best brains perhaps are working for the IBMs and the Intels, etc. But why is it that we don't get people who work in these companies to do startups? It's still going back to the IITs, the freshers who come and start up. So there are some, some fundamental issues that we need to address. And, and, and that's not a China problem or an American problem. Americans have been able to uh, address it very well. They got the smartest people from around the world to work for them and do the research. The Chinese did the same. They sent them to America and got them back paying high salaries and to do all this research including this uh, uh, gain for research uh, which caused the COVID virus was an outsourcing from, uh, from, uh, from the Americans. So if, if there is something that works for these countries, okay, mm -hmm. that people are able to go back and create valuable enterprises. It's not entirely the military who's doing this. There are people who are doing it. Okay. So how, do, how does that become uh, uh, you know, workable in a country? There's something. And that chemistry we need to find. What makes people who study? Look at the number of students who are going abroad and studying. They never come back. So there are some structural things we have to address for these children to come back here. You know, we, we have been discussing with, uh, you know, the ISROs of the world here uh, and, and some of the senior folks in DRDO. I said, when you are asking these uh, startups who are coming out of uh, uh, IITs, etc., to, to build something. Are you sure that what you are asking them to do is for a future use, or are you trying to tell them to build something that you thought 10 years ago? Because if you do that, that guy comes out, he's only willing to spend five years, four years to take a to, to take something like a risk or a chance. After that, he has to feed his family. So if you don't align him to a problem or a statement or a use that will be there in the next three, five years you might be asking him to work on an outdated technology. Now, the, the problem is, you know, so there are some fundamental fixes we have to do to make sure that we are able to build all this. And it doesn't help to sit in another country to say everything is wrong here, everything is wrong here. No, we, we have enjoyed this country for the last so many years. Yes, there are challenges. 
these are challenges that are happening not only because of technology, it's also happening because times are different. It's not only in India we are having these challenges. There are these challenges are happening in different parts of the world, including the US. Okay. So I think I think we have to play by it. We have to accept that this is a, it's a factor of time, but we have to create those mechanisms within our country, not external. How do we set this right? Even if it is incremental, moving that radar by 2%, 3%, 4%, in 10 years, we can move the radar. So I think it's for people who take decisions who are on the helm of these uh, uh, you know, government policies or R&D institutes to see how do we align what the world needs. Like, for example, we had an American ambassador who came to our office recently, and I asked him just one question, tell us what is the conflict that you think will happen so that our engineers can start also building for larger, not just for you know, very localized things. I think there is a big picture that we can draw. And Jal Pandu mentioned about there are big requirements that are coming up in the quad, and they're coming up in, in many parts of the world. Maybe maybe we, we should think big uh, rather than just look at small problems of, of an ISRO uh, or, a, or somebody else. And look at big pictures. Because at the end, as Jal Pandu said, what will sustain everything, R&D, etc., is the commercial part of it. If the business doesn't work, all these guys will go. And Jal Pandu was right in saying, well, how does America work? I mean, all their defense industry is corporatized. They make money. They make profit. So how do we do the same? You know, make a start and, and see that, uh, you know, maybe we are developing our own heft maybe in three years, five years, two years, whatever. But we can punch with our own strength. Great. Uh, so I think, uh, uh, General Pannu, you may please unmute yourself and take this question from the from the audience. Uh, 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 the question that, that there are three or four questions, but I'll I've chosen the one which I think is most relevant. Uh, the question says, with the Chinese uh, quite high in manufacturing and technology, and spreading it across the world, how is Make in India tackling that and spreading Make in India? in products, products, technologies, and processes. So uh, will uh, this slogan uh, get transformed into action? And what can we do about it? Uh, over to you, General Pan. You're muted, sir. Yes. There was some problem in my, in my sound. Uh, could you repeat uh, the question? Yeah, uh, you know, uh, we've just had this uh, conversation and, and these are now questions from the audience. Uh, it says that with Chinese very high in manufacturing and technology and spreading it all across the world, uh, how is Make in India tackling this challenge? And how do we spread Make in India uh, products and technology? So it's basically, you know, asking whether Make in India is just a slogan or are we... Uh, are we putting some muscle uh, behind the Make in India and all these things about the defense corridor and everything that you have been discussing over the last few years? As far as Make in India is concerned, it is a correct direction. And I think uh, we have to make in India because self-reliance is the only time that you can say you actually became independent. Otherwise, you are still enslaved. You know, you're still a colony if you have not invested in your own product, in your own industry, in your own R&D, uh, your dependency uh, does not grant you independence. So it is only a fake independence. Uh, today, again, the CIPRI reports say that we are the largest importers of military hardware in the world. Number one, I mean, what kind of a distinction is this? But uh, you cannot do Atam Nirbharta overnight. It takes time. Indigenization takes a lot of, lot of time. For the simple reason that the technology, which is the niche technology, will never be parted with by the advanced nations because that is how they are advanced. If they part the advanced technology or niche technology, then uh, they, they are allowing the uh, people behind to cross them. Therefore, we have to do our own R&D. And I think uh, one question is, look at the IITs we have. I think they're doing incredible job. But the data shows that how many IIT uh, graduates are working for DRDO and ISRO. And I think you will be surprised that in DRDO, not even 
a single digit. So therefore, where are the IITs going? Are they building a private industry for themselves? Or are they working for Western uh, countries? I think that is the policy change that we need to do. If you are going to be studying on government expense, you rather contribute to the national um, effort. And that is how the whole uh, one nation approach comes up. Why is IIT uh, producing graduates or you know, producing skilled people who are not going to work for India? And I think they are the ones who need to build our own DARPA. And uh, as I'm saying in ISRO and uh, IIT, me, these people should be there. Let me just raise a question here. If the IIT's graduate are not willing to work in DRDO, is it a problem of DRDO or is it a problem of IITs? I mean, are the DRDOs providing that ecosystem for people to remain there? I mean, that's a problem which Indian doctors have. That's a problem which, which everyone has. So is it something to do with the ecosystem of IITs? Why are we, why are we, so so is it, isn't it the DRDO and the governance system which needs to change rather than, you know, say that these 20-year-olds are not patriotic enough? You're muted, sir. Okay. You're muted. Keep it on. Keep it on. Yeah. Yes, sir. Okay, maybe Toby. Can uh, Toby, can you just take on this question? Let me set my uh, mic right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, uh, Sanjeev, let me go back to a few years, uh, you know, and 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 look at ISRO as a case point. You know, uh, uh, there was. Uh, uh, a big uh, push on on space. Uh, it had a national character, and we saw some of the finest uh, engineers in the world, um, in India, joining ISRO. Okay, so they they need not come entirely from IITs. Okay, but you had some of the brightest minds that uh, came. I mean, if you look at currently the CEO of Microsoft, he's not IIT guy. He's from another university. Nokia guy was also not IIT. So I'm just saying while IIT is nice, uh, perhaps perhaps they, are, they have a much higher level of aspiration that they enjoy working for platform companies and fintechs. Nothing much of their brain is used. If you see what they do in fintech and all that stuff, okay? It's not something which uh, somebody who's, who has to qualify that sort of an exam need to necessarily do. But the trappings of economics are so high that, uh, you know, people uh, might uh, uh, not give that uh, uh, credence to uh, doing something for the nation. But as General Panu said, if, if people are uh, using Indian money to study here, funded by government, then there must be a commitment for them to do some work here, whether whatever is the case. They cannot take the, the fees. It's like, you know, you are having Indian companies doing a lot of startups here, using electricity, water, uh, all the all that is provided by the country, getting a lot of benefits. And finally, uh, they just sell the company to somebody. I mean, at least one thing they should do, keep the IP here. So let the company be so, let the maybe somebody else knows to manage the business well, but at least the IP is here so that there is some revenue that comes back to the system. I think the government you, must be... Uh, we're just running out of time now, so uh, we'll request uh, General Panu to make the last comments uh, because we must close in the next two minutes. General Panu, please, sir. I think it is a technology. Uh, today, which is giving me a bit of a challenge, but I think I'm somehow trying to manage it. Uh, see, um, I think India today is on the right track. Uh, you cannot speed up uh, beyond uh, your capability. Um, we have to invest in semiconductors and that technology, not only that you have to start building from wafers onwards and to get programs uh, to the nanometers that we need for uh, advanced programs for space and cyber, and also to run our systems for national security, you need your own supply chain, uh, which is uh, trustworthy. And I think in Atam Nirbharta, if we are doing one side research and development, and on the, on the other side, we have our own manufacturing of what has been designed and developed in India. And I think that is the way ahead. And 
only then we will be able to contribute to the overall exports. I see if we are manufacturing standards are of global standard, then obviously our export potential will be also that much more. We will earn more. We will provide for better. We will have better defense budgets and same will be plowed back into uh, making uh, a nation strong with a better comprehensive national power. Technology adds largely to comprehensive national power. Yeah. Uh, I would have uh, wanted you to continue, but you know, there's the only constraint in the world is the constraint of time. Uh, so we must close here. But I think it's been it's been a very very interesting discussion. Those of us who still have questions can write to celebrate uh, uh, the celebrate account of uh, Value of Earth or send your WhatsApp. Uh, we'll try to respond to those. The the closing message, if I could say one thing, is that India is on the path to Atmanirbharta. That we are on the right track. We need to, you know, rev up our speed. We need to improve the acceleration. We need to improve the velocity. And we need to go ahead uh, full speed, full strength. Thank you very much, Toby. Thank you very much, General Panu. Thank you to NDLI. Thank you to UPES. Uh, thank you to Garwal Post, Fair Observer, Coal India, Technopack, uh, Green Panel, and everyone who's been here with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sanjeev. Thank, thank you, Toby.